Like I really want to hammer home to people that you should be finding things that not that you love, but that feel like play that are work. And if you can find a way to do that in a way that actually like elicits a response from whether it's consulting or agency work or whatever, but actually helps people, whether it makes them money or makes them feel good, whatever. Like I've found myself in a really awesome position having chats with people like you and really awesome people because of that. Welcome to another episode of Hyperi Presents. In this episode, I talked to James Camp. James started his first online business when he was just 16 years old. Once he made his first dollar online, he was hooked and tried a lot of black hat stuff to get traffic to his websites. He shares some of his best tricks you should probably never use. Luckily, he pulled himself back to the good side of the force and now only uses white hat tactics to flip and grow businesses. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hyperi, and I hope you enjoy the show. James, I think a lot of people are wondering, because you're sharing a lot of stuff on website flipping, is how did this dude struggle into the, or how do you say that, trip into the online world? Because I know a little bit about you, but what brought you to yeah, the online business? Sure. So I think probably everyone, or at least a lot of the people that I talk to, my story is not super, super unique. Some people sort of find online business because they're sort of tired of their nine to five. And then a lot of people I know are sort of like me. And this is sort of all I've ever known. You know, I was the kid selling candy during lunch periods in high school. I went to five high schools because I was a real screw up. We had, at one of them, we had four lunch periods. It was a 5,000 person high school. And I literally went and bought, found the candy box the basketball team sold, found the distributor of it, bought them myself. And I would just cut class and stand with the bas- basketball players in the lunchroom and just sell candy. But earlier prior to that, I was really into sneakers. And I remember specifically like the first money I made online. I was like 15 or 16. And I was really into like streetwear and sneakers and this whole downtown New York City scene. And I started a blog. It was called Gold Piece XL. Don't ask me why. I had just bought a bunch of scrap gold jewelry because I was like convinced I was going to start. I was like 16. going to start like smelting gold down and making money off of scrap gold. And I bought some guide on that. And so I like, I took all these pictures with my little old camera, like of this scrap jewelry. And anyway, I started this blog, Gold Piece XL. And I would just write about sneakers and stuff I liked and stuff that I found interesting. And I'm an incredibly uncreative person, I think at least. I started trying to find, this sort of defines my career, but find other people's content and find what other people did and sort of copy them and tweak it and make it work for me. And I wrote a couple articles and I would just go, there were old blogging communities. I would just go DM like hundreds of people a day. Be like, hey man, I love your content. I'd love you to check out my article. Just like a kid with no ego, you know, spamming people. And like, I'd love you to upload my article. I loved yours. And I do that all day. And everybody said F you or what? Uh, No, well, yes and no. So like what, what I found is interesting about like today versus, so I'm 32 to put this into context, right? So this is like 16 years ago. So it wasn't like the beginning of the internet. And I'm not like some like super OG old school guy, but I've been around this area marketing scene for crazily almost two decades now. So people were more open to that stuff. Like the way we used to spam when we were kids, like I couldn't do spamming the way people spam now because I'm not a techie, but I used to post like thousands and thousands of Craigslist ads every single day, right? With just like automated tools and stuff. But anyway, I was spamming all those people, tell them to read my articles. And I had two articles. One was... Um, that at Starbucks, if you bring your empty cup, they will refill it for 37 cents. 
And I wrote an article about that. And then the other one was there was a book. I Catch Me If You Can had just come out. And there's a book by Frank Abagnale called The Art of the Steel. And it was just about cons and how to avoid being conned. And back in the day, there you, Yahoo bought this article website. I forgot what it was called. But everyone used to just spin up spun articles and sell them to Yahoo for the article content. So I was very used to the idea. People were used to say, oh, go to the library, take all these books, copy them, and put them on your website because they don't exist online yet. And you could do this, right? Like you could. And so I basically took this article, this chapter in this book, and I rewrote it. And it was about how to send mail for free. And the idea was that if you send mail, if you put zero postage on your mail and you put the address that you want to send it to as the return address and you drop it in a mailbox, the post office will say, oh, there's no postage on this mail. We have to return to sender because they haven't paid for it. And and they would send your mail to the place where you want it to go for free. Anyway, those things from my spamming people's inboxes went viral on Dig and stumble upon, which I don't think either of them exist today anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think Dig is trying to go through a revival. I think maybe the old founder replotted or something I saw recently. But I opened up my AdSense account, which is sort of just, you know, the the entryway into online money. And I think I made like 36 bucks. And I was like, jaw on the floor. I was like, this is it. Like this is how I'm gonna get rich. And um Anyway, long story short, that's a long narrative, but that was my first intro into it. I got very involved in the internet marketing communities, became a moderator on some big, big internet marketing forums that I'm sure a lot of people listen to this know. I, AdSense made me go down a, a rabbit hole of understanding ads and advertising and how that's brokered between one person and another because it's really just a marketplace with, with bidders and sellers when you're talking about ads. So I got into affiliate marketing, became a pretty decently sized publisher in that space, ran some big offers a lot of traffic sort of leverage being a moderator in some big forums and having some clout sort of, so to speak, into launching a CPA network. So an affiliate network called Liquid Offers that we sold pretty quickly after. It was small. It was nothing big, but it felt big at, at like 19. And that's how I sort of, I mean, I can tell you the rest of my life, but that's sort of really how I uh, got into this world. It's interesting. So you mentioned your, your affiliate business. Why did you get into that instead of, you know, going deeper into, you know, the AdSense revenue and, and sort of all different crazy ideas I heard you mention. Why the, the affiliate first? So to be completely candid in a way that probably it's fine for me to talk about now, but I would not have gone deep into a long time ago. I used to run a lot of black hat traffic to stuff. And I can tell you that I definitely tried to run black hat traffic to Google and that Google was really good. Like Google knows about click fraud for sure, right? Like that's they're obviously even infinitely better at today. Like I haven't partaken in that world in 15 years. But when you first discover that you can make money online and you're 15, your gut instinct is not like, how do I go? Or for me, it wasn't. How do I go and build some massive SEO website and just get tons of organic traffic? It's like, you're an idiot. And you're like, whoa, for every click, I get $2. Well, if I build a website on mesothelioma attorneys, every click is worth $90. So I think... I started with really black hat stuff. I used to get banned from networks all the time. I also had like a lot of Google AdSense website, but I was scared of Google. You know, I thought they have so many PhDs working for them. They're a lot smarter than me if they ban my AdSense account, which at the time, you know, the first website I said I was like a proxy website, which had a lot of traffic, but not a lot of revenue. So I was looking into, okay, 
how can I get rid of all the web hosting bills and make more money? And I looked into, you know, finance websites who had crazy high CPCs. And I thought, well, if there are people bidding a lot in Google, then my AdSense revenue is going to be high as well. And that's something I looked into, you know, how to get higher CPCs. And I built websites that got that. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, that's one thing. I In 2019, I took a deep dive. I had a really failed project I worked on where I took a deep dive into sort of programmatic display and sort of how that world really works and sort of how, and that's, I, I learned a lot from it, but I, but that was, you know, until I was 30 before I really took a deep dive into understanding programmatic display and, and that model. But no, I, I ran some black hat stuff, but I didn't really for a very long time, but it was sort of the black hat stuff was easier. I think just on the CPA on affiliate stuff. So when I say CPA, it's like cost per, you know, cost per acquisition for everyone that doesn't know it. It's, Basically, per lead, CPL is most of it, right? So, Can you share some of your black hat tactics? Sure. I mean, <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's a statute of limitations and stuff. Yeah. I mean, the black hat stuff, the trick was to was I got good at white hat. And as you mix, you start blending white hat and black hat traffic together. And then sort of on the back end, it sort of all blends together. And it's fine because most of the black hat traffic doesn't, it converts but it, on the back end, it doesn't do particularly well. I'll give you some, some less nefarious stuff, but I used to run a ton of Craigslist traffic, right? And so we could say that Black Hat ranges from sort of not allowed as a traffic source to total fraud, to be completely candid, right? So some people were just like back in the day, just, you know, working with people that were fishing and taking CC, you know, credit cards and just entering them and on rebills and getting paid off that. That was never me, right? But, you know, for instance, Craigslist, it's against, against the terms of service. So we do lead gen through Craigslist and you could post one ad on Craigslist and you might get like one response, right? Or zero responses. That's not worth it to you. But if you can post 2,000 ads a day on Craigslist in 50 different cities, you know, with or 100 different cities, 200 different cities, whatever, right? Then, it, then the volume makes sense, right? So when you post one, you're like, oh, this isn't worth my time. I had to create an account and to post it. But we used to use this thing called, I thought it was called Clad. It's funny now that I think back on it. I thought it was called Clad Poster. And it was definitely called CL Ad Poster, Craigslist Ad Poster. And I legitimately thought when I was a kid, the name was Clad Poster. Yeah, you would just buy PVA accounts, so phone verified accounts. So you buy like PVA accounts from people. You used to be able to use like, it's funny because Twilio has become this massive company, but you could use like Twilio for phone numbers and just phone verified accounts. And you get different proxies or VPN for each one of them. And then we post thousands and thousands of ads at the same time, or you know, within an hour, all the accounts would get banned and burned. But the point is you're essentially getting, if you're only getting half of a conversion for each one or, or it takes 10 to get a conversion, it doesn't matter because with a thousand ads, you're getting a hundred conversions. If you want to get more into the mechanics of it, I'll give you one that I've never posted about, which is like pretty nefarious, but it doesn't really harm, it harmed advertisers. You create like a fake job posting, and I feel bad for the time because it was just like I just I believe in karma. Like I really, really believe in karma. And like what I did when I was like sixteen was just being a dumb kid, and I made money. But in retrospect, I like now I'm trying to make up for that. But you'd put these like fake job postings, and then you would have an autoresponder that was like, "Oh, thank you so much for applying, applying to the job." You do like very low level stuff like data entry. You say we actually want to make sure that you're like understanding details and that you're that you can find all the differences and things. And so you have a fake job website, a fake company, a fake LinkedIn profile of the company, all that stuff. And then we had a quiz and the quiz was basically just different affiliate offers. And so we'd say like, we need you to submit your email on this page and tell us what you find on page three. 
after submitting your email? What's in the bottom right-hand corner, right? And make sure that you can pay attention to detail. And every time someone submitted their email, they'd be like low level, but they'd be like biz op. To try and make them fit better, we would do like biz op offers or work from home offers because these are all people that are looking to work from home anyway. So it'd be like SMC was a big one back in the day, like all these, and it would pay out like nothing crazy, but it'd pay out like 250 for a name and email and an address, right? And by the time at the end, you have to fill out four or five, right? As part of this quiz, as part of the application. At the end, you're like, thank you so much for doing this. Please submit your answers here. And just some type form didn't exist. I remember we used, but it was like Wufu, I think is what we used, which was like another form builder. Yeah, yeah. People submit it. And then basically that set a trigger that like a day later would send an auto reply from the company being like, thank you so much about... Unfortunately, your job application. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right that was so that was it but and so so the thing is it's that scale right these are things that taught me scale right because like i said you, you do one ad maybe you get one maybe you do an ad and you get three applications right or four applications and one in four people actually go through the thing and so let's say and it costs you three bucks for a phone verified account and it costs you a buck for a proxy i'm making these numbers up because i don't remember it exactly right but so you spend four and you're pulling in 10. But maybe that PVA and that proxy can post on two, can post two ads before it gets banned or three, right? My point though is, so in each ad, you make four bucks, let's say. Well, let's find at one, and you could spend 10 hours a day and maybe post 50, maybe you make 200 bucks, and that's cool. But then you do learn how to do that with 2,000 posts a day, right? And numbers start really becoming yeah. crazy. And, and I, I remember being in my friend's car the first time I got a wire for like $17,000 from affiliate marketing. Wow. And what's really funny about that is there are guys that are all over Twitter today that I talk to all the time that are much bigger affiliate marketers than I was. I know guys that are doing $400,000 a month right now. Wow. And some of the people I really look up to were monsters in the world. Anyway, that was some of the black hat stuff. That was very early on in my life. And then I learned, you know, media buying and I ended up getting into really into emailing in a very different way than I do today. There used to be these things where you could partner. There was a company called Oxygen. They would do rev share deals with you and they would give you lists, right? And so it was GI data. So GI is sort of general internet. So like no Yahoo, no Gmail, no AOL, no Hotmail. That's people were still using all that stuff back then. But so like only at business names. So you could inbox much more easily, right? Because in Gmail, you're going to spam. If you go into like Squirrel Mail or Horde or any of these other things, right? Everything just like shows up there for you. And so we would just take affiliate offers. We'd do this like a 60-40 rev split. We would do, we were burning through domains, like 10 or 20 domains a day. But we would do like, I'm not kidding, like you'd email like 10 million emails a day, like really big numbers. And you'd make off that like 800 bucks. I, it was nothing, you know, crazy. Wow. That's, that's the old school black hat world that I grew up in. That was a big forum that I was on back in the day. But Wicked Fire, I want to give a shout out to Wicked Fire, which is a forum that's dead now. And I'm sorry for everyone who wants to get into your marketing because it doesn't really exist anymore. You can go find all the old stuff there. But like I was a moderator on Black Hat World and an admin on this thing called Moneymaker Discussion. And Wicked Fire was like the epitome of like real white hat stuff. I'm sure there's some black hat stuff going on there. But um, that was sort of the, when I started playing in that world was really when I got more involved in, in real legitimate stuff. Yeah, so, you know, you swam in the black hat world for a long time, but all of a sudden, you know, the dark force wasn't powerful enough and you went to the to the right side. What happened? When I sold Liquid Offers, which was my CPA network, I mean, it was just more of a slow transition. What you realize is like, first of all, affiliate marketing is already a game where like you are pivoting and moving and changing all the time. If you're running paid traffic, at least, right? Like, so it's just a complex race. 
And especially if you're running black hat traffic, right? Like all you need to do is spend first time you spend $5,000, you know, and you think you're going to pull in $25,000 and a network calls you up and it's like, Oh, by the way, the advertiser says that 30% of your leads are backing out. They're fraud. We're not going to pay you is the moment you're like, okay, this is maybe not the thing for me. You also then realize that I don't mind gray hat stuff more against terms of service of the type of traffic you're running, but sort of the deceptive stuff that I knew a lot of people were really running and the basic fraud that new people were running is just like not good. And so I got into white hat stuff because I realized there's a lot more longevity in it. And when I built my network, basically CPA network is a broker of offers, right? So you have advertisers that say, we want leads. And then you have guys like us, they're like, I can drive you traffic. And you just middleman it and you take a book or you take a fee, basically. And the problem is, it's a really tough game because you often have to float payments to pubs, to publishers before you can pay from advertisers. And so if you're dealing with black hat and gray hat traffic, you end up, this is how a lot of them went belly up, right? Is like a lot of them are paying out money that they weren't getting back later. So when I sold that world, I when I sold liquid offers and I sort of come from a different kind of world of life. Like my family is very well educated. I, I'm not some rich kid, but I grew up, you know, in good circles in Manhattan. You know, like I knew there was like a whole different world of making money. And so I decided I'm going to be a digital strategist and sort of tried to pitch that to bigger companies and, and stuff that I knew and spent a few years of my life as a nightclub promoter. But that was a whole, a whole different bag of tricks. But yeah. I started consulting, got really lucky. I, I think nepotism is the wrong word because some of the people that I consulted for, it was for sure I got intro to some people that were high up and important. But uh, when you get sort of into the bigger world of stuff, it's really not about, you know, like I, I started, I did consulting work for McKinsey and Lionsgate and stuff like that. It was sort of, you know, that stuff sort of transcends like, oh, here's James, give him a job. You know, it, it turns into like, if you're not there and you can't perform, then everyone's going to stop paying you pretty quick and, and someone else's job is on the line. Um, so I start consulting. Yeah. And when did you transition again? Because now you're more into website flipping and stuff like that. When to, did you transition again? So to go back, you know, I flipped some websites back when I was just internet scheming, I think, you know what I mean? That was sort of way back in the day. One of the bigger flips was, was not traditional that I had was I bought from a domain or a URL called uploadforever.com. And they just had it parked and it was just getting on a cost per click basis money from people that it used to be a file hosting website. And uh, just this website sat there with this fake search engine on it and he was getting cost per click. So, so I bought that website from him and I had people rebuild it into an actual file hosting website. And what I did was I took my affiliate network, my CPA network, and I went to advertisers and I started brokering incense offers, what's called incentive-based advertising. And so I turned it into a content blocking website. And so basically that was one of the, the first bigger plays that I saw where you could take a business sort of change it and then make it a thing much more profitable. And so basically you would upload a file. If I wanted to download it, I had to go through a CPA offer an affiliate offer to download the content, right? The only difference is it was all white hat because the advertisers knew it was incentivized, you know, it was incentivized for people to go through. You were probably paid less. Yeah, they pay less. They pay significantly less. Significantly less. At least you didn't have to look over your shoulder and you know it was legit. Totally. So I did some website flipping then. And then it's funny because I actually didn't flip a website for maybe a decade. I mean, for sure a decade. I was really just doing consulting. I was, you know, doing marketing, food and beverage and hospitality. I was doing stuff for like McKinsey and Lionsgate. And then I was doing strategy for a bunch of brands. It doesn't matter. Point is, I didn't really wasn't on the website flipping. I had moved off to Kuala Lumpur. I was like 26 I was like, I hate my life. I hate New York. I want to get out of here. I want to do the digital nomad, you know, laptop from a beach thing, like everyone says. 
and uh, sold everything I owned. And I moved to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and not on a real visa, on a tourist visa. So basically, like every 90 days, you get to do like a visa run. So I'd like go to Bali for the weekend, right? Go to Thailand for the weekend, and I'd rent like these big villas. You want a growth hack to make, you know, be three times as rich as you were the day before, move to a developing country, you know, and make money in USD. And it was a real big life hack in that way. Started mentoring on growth strategy, I think, called Magic, which is like, doesn't matter. So in terms of accelerators, started mentoring in London, actually, at a tech accelerator Google runs called Launchpad. Came back to New York. An old friend of mine was a commodities trader. He's like, I really want to get into cannabis. So let's, let's take a run at this cannabis industry stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm a marketer, so we'll figure this out. So we ended up sort of building some websites and buying some websites and uh, using those to sort of transition into getting cannabis companies exposure and building out sales funnels and marketing funnels and using them as top of funnel things, essentially. Right. And then we sold that company, which had holdings in a lot of different companies. We took equity in lieu of cash for a lot of stuff. And we sold that company and all the websites in it for a lot more money back in July of last year. And I run us a little bit through how you how you built that network of top of funnel websites. So you had like content stuff that funneled towards like the e-com store or what did you so do? So it really would depend. So a lot of the people that we worked with were companies raising capital and stuff. So our main the biggest website we built was actually a financial news website. And we would sort of it would be top of funnel. So we would take press releases, or we would take content around people doing capital raising for cannabis companies and get it out to our network. And then sort of we pixel those people using something called Snipply, which is like a cool tool where basically you can sort of iframe to any website you want, essentially. And so then you can embed your own pixel on any website you want. So like I could send you to the Wall Street Journal to read an article about Tesla, right? And I could still pixel you as long as I sent you there, right? And then now all of a sudden I can retarget you and get you later on with more stuff. But actually we built, you know, we built MJ Observer was the main one. You know, 40,000 unique email subscribers, 40,000 email subs, like 2 million uniques a year, 92 identifying. You actually became like a publisher to sell weed? No, no, no. So, no. You weren't actually in the selling weed stuff, but you were in the cannabis space. Sure. I didn't want to touch the plant, right? So I knew a lot of people and investors that were interested in ancillary businesses around this space, right? That, that So I live in, in the U.S., right? So if things are starting to change... But, you know, five years ago, it was like you, you know, bank would hold your deposits in the industry. There's no way to do anything, right? As long as you touch the plant. So that was sort of what fragmented it a lot, made it very difficult. And so we sort of became the conduit for people to meet capital and investors. And then it's a long story, ended up sort of owning pieces of, of consumer packaged goods brands that were in the space that were CBD based. And so I ended up building and running digital for those brands under this umbrella of this holdings company. But the main website that we flipped in that one was called MJ Observer. The people that bought it don't really do anything with it now, but because they, they bought the whole company and it was something they didn't really care about. But, you know, we built that with $7 and, you know, it was definitely worth a couple million bucks. So, you know, what it was really was, it was Facebook groups. There's a community called StockTwits. We got Google News approved. And then we used to, used to like pull press releases all day. Press releases, people want you to copy and paste and spread apart. That's the and spread around that's the point of a press release. And so since we were in Google News and all these other cannabis websites weren't, we would pull these press releases and put them in and Google News would pick us up and we would be the top of Google for, for these things. So the point is, in that company was the first time I'd flipped websites in like a decade, right? Because we built and bought some websites and then turned them into bigger ones and sold them as part of a much larger exit. 
I want to drill down a little bit because I think that's really interesting. So you you created an ecosystem around a topic, you know, that back then in the United States was, you know, it's pretty controversial, still is. You know, here in the Netherlands, you can, I could just uh, about. <laughs> it is illegal in Holland, though, as much as they, it is, commercial production of cannabis is illegal in, in Holland. You're allowed to sell retail, right? But no one's allowed to sell to those coffee shops, right? It's illegal to sell from the from the grower to the coffee shop. So that's all underground. I know it is. Yeah, strange world. They're actually doing some uh, some tests with that to legalize the production of it, of it as well, because that's where the real money is being made. You know, that's where the dark side is uh, is lurking, so to speak. Yeah. But so let's drill down. So you picked the cannabis world because you know a lot of things were happening back then. There was probably a lot of debate in the U.S. What was going to happen? Maybe you were already foreseeing that there was some legalization coming up. How did you start with that? That MJ website, why did you think about Facebook groups and run us through a little bit of your thought process and how you grew those assets? Yeah, so my old business partner is like one of the smartest financial minds I know, but he's not a marketer at all. And he had actually started a blog about this, about pot stocks. This was like right, the Trump election in 2016, right? And so everyone was sort of, if you guys want to sort of know what's a great way to ride waves is around election time, find topics and search volume for certain things that no one else is trying to rank for specifically will be super high, right? So like people are, are always looking at the economy around elections. That's like a sort of a big one for to dive into. And so he wrote out things about the cannabis industry and Trump in terms of stocks and what equity markets might look like in a Trump presidency. So that blew up. We got into that really just because, I mean, I was, I definitely partook, you know, a lot more with it when I was a kid. You know, I loved it. My partner loved it. We really believed it was going to be a massive industry, and it is, mostly because the difference with most new industries is people are sort of projecting where industries are going to be at. The difference with weed is that like this industry exists. It's just black market and gray market today. So like if I say to you, cannabis is going to be a $50 billion industry next year, well, it already is a $50 billion industry. It just is illegal, right? Like So it's, it, we just saw that the tides were turning, that that's going to happen. And then no one's really ranking for that. And in fact, really, there's still a lot of gaps in that space in terms of search engines weren't ranking people for content. A lot of people, you email ESPs were blocking, you know, subject lines in emails that said marijuana or cannabis. So we just honestly, we just saw it as like a really hot opportunity. I think that emerging markets and frontier markets are always really hot opportunities. And you see that happen in like the penny stock world a lot. It's normally where people are like sort of talking about investments. And some of them become real big, like electric vehicles. Like that's why Tesla's so big right now, right? Or a big piece of it. So we realized when we were writing about these cannabis companies, you know, the reality is there were not big publications writing about them. Wall Street Journal was not writing about weed companies, right? So I'm a firm believer that every audience that you want to advertise to already exists somewhere online. And so the trick is to sort of find where they exist and to embed yourselves within them. And become an authority in that space. So we realized, let's just sit, talk about the stock side, for example. There were like 200 publicly traded marijuana companies. And most people didn't even know that, right? But if you were into that space, you were talking about it through forums and on Facebook groups because it's the only place you could talk about it. It's the only place you could read about it. So we would just join all these groups, become part of them. There's a website called StockTwits, which was like a financial version of Twitter that never really took off. I mean, it has, but not in the way I think they wanted it to, that talks about stocks specifically. We would just embed ourselves in these communities, become trusted, become useful, and then we would just share our content. I mean, it sounds like 
I hate when I say it out loud, it just sounds so benign and simple, but it really is that simple, right? It's like, it's just like the Twitter stuff, right? Like if you can find your corner of Twitter and you can actually provide them with really useful information, when you decide to give them your own stuff, they're very happy to support and eat it up. And we just put together really useful, real, exciting content. And it happened to be very early on in the space, right? So our readers were not just like, oh, I want to invest in marijuana or I'm interested in this industry. It was like, you know, MDs at large investment banks. It was, you know, hedge fund managers. And in the beginning, before you have 40,000 subs, when you've got like a thousand, you're like looking at every email address attached to the name, right? And so we would be like, oh my God, this person's huge. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. So you started the publication, you took uh, press releases left and right. You created a website where you published consistently. With that, I think you could apply for Google News. Yeah, even further, you know, uh, increase your growth. Run us through that a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we took, that's pretty gray hat stuff. I mean, I guess some would say I was like spamming. I was, right, in some regards, right? But sort of, it's the spam is so subjective, right? Like the spam is only spam if it's not wanted. So like, as long as you like my content, it's not really spamming, right? So when I was posting to 100 Facebook groups a day, people love the content. But I guess it might be have been actually against the terms of service of Facebook. I don't know. Same thing, you know, we used to, we would find whatever, it's called pumpkin hacking. You find sort of what's popular and you take it and then you sort of create content for what's already popular, right? And so what's already resonating. So we'd go on stock twits and see like what stock was trending in the space that day. And then we would just go and create like, really simple content around it. People love reading, you know, and we would do, I don't want to get too stuck on the financial side of it because it's sort of esoteric if you don't know the space, but we would say like Aurora cannabis is up 14% today. We would just have a live chart on our website. The thing about things that trade, for example, you could say something literally every moment about it and it would be new information. So like we would just like post it. I would have a chart on the page with a pop-up that was like, want to know more about Aurora cannabis? Sign up here. Right. And then it would go into Aurora Cannabis groups and I'd be like, whoa, have you guys seen the trading today in Aurora volume so high? Right. And then we would get like, I remember we would get like, I remember one post that got 220 signups to a company called 22nd Century for our list on 22nd Century. And we would have, you know, on a good day, we'd have like 300 people at once on the website, 400 people. I mean, these are like not like insane numbers, but if you're niche enough, they were pretty powerful. And I think one thing I want to lean on is that like it ended up being that that website, which is how we started this business was the core of this business was actually not what made the business powerful to people was not what made it valuable. It was sort of how we use as our top of funnel conduit to deal flow and to access people. So we ended up doing a lot of like sort of broker exempt M and A advisory stuff that ended up happening because there was no place for this. So people would say like, Oh, Hey, do you know investment bankers? Can you help me raise capital? Like I see, you know, or, Hey, I'm a analyst looking for blank. You know, and we would just sort of be this conduit. It was a, it's a weird amalgamation like of a company that I could never redesign or recreate, but the lessons from it were, you know, to sort of pumpkin hack an industry that's new and exciting and big. Well, you asked me another question along with that. That was good. I want to make sure I answer it. So the Google news stuff, man, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like at one point we had five of us working there. But there's like 30 writers on the website and they're not real. And again, that's just like the gray hat stuff, right? So part of the Google News stuff is like you have to have over X amount of contributors who all put unique pieces. And we were just like, cool, sure. Like this is written by blankety blank. And, you know, it's funny because we used to get like emails like I hate the way like Susie Peterson doesn't know what she's talking about. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and you're like, oh, that's just like. Which was you. 
Yeah, they're like, I'll talk to Susie about that. You know what I mean? And then we used a lot of Upwork. We did use writers there. You get big enough and you get a lot of people that want to contribute to you because they just want to get their name out there and get a backlink. And we were sort of known in this space. But that was a little gray hat as well. So it was nice because we you have to have a certain amount of fresh content and a certain amount of writers. I think those are the two things that Google News really used to harp on. And getting in there was sort of a game changer. So then you're just waiting to see what's the hottest news news. And then you're just writing about it as quickly as you can. Like as quickly as you can and getting it out there. And it dies off pretty quickly in the first day or two. But that's a that's like a that's a game of attrition. It's a long game. We were doing, I mean, it's funny, we were putting out like 25 pieces of content a day with a small team, you know? So it, it was a lot. I think a lot of people also underestimate outliers as in so if, if aurora does something on the stock market or tesla or something if there's an outlier it goes up a lot it goes down a lot there's news there people are going to search for it people are going to do things and yeah if you jump on that you can really capitalize and, and yeah I, i'm not creative like i said you know like that's i'm just copying other what other people's trends to this day i think you're 100 right it was a grind man i mean you know we used to do like like a pre-market newsletter right so like i was in the office at you know, 6.30 in the morning, you know what I mean? Like in the office, like digging through news, like trying to write content to get to people before the markets opened, right? You know, like some of the best and worst times in my life <laughs> were at that company. Yeah, I think if you can create a good strategy around that, because, you know, I'm sure we haven't done a lot of that, but at one point there was that retweet change, the way you could, you could only create, quote, retweet somebody instead of just click and then retweet. That was a big change because of the U.S. election. I wrote a small blog post about that change. I think it was 250 words or something like that. It took me half an hour. And nobody had written anything about that yet. And within a couple of hours, we were already ranking number one. And we raked in thousands and thousands of visitors in, like I don't know, 48 hours. It was 20,000 visitors or something like that. I don't know, 10,000. Just a lot. I think the trick with that is like you have to be, A, on top of it all the time. But also where it's sort of like anyone, probably most people have high theory, for example, have sort of understand the mechanics of, of virality in Twitter, right? Like I haven't mastered it, but I get it, right? But the trick is sort of me putting out 10 tweets or threads that I believe, you know, fit these mechanics and nine of them are not going to hit, right? So my point is the same thing with what we're talking about here, right? Just so you're on top of it all the time, but it doesn't mean that every super new thing you put out is actually going to hit. But if one of them does it sort of makes up for the other not, right? In, in a really powerful way. Yeah, exactly. Why did you decide to join Twitter? Why Twitter and not Instagram or Facebook or whatever? Why? Sure. So actually that'll circle back into your question about website flipping, which is bring, sort of brings us all together. I actually probably, I've actually been on Twitter since 2011. And I, so I can only imagine when I was a party kid at 21, like, you know, I can really only imagine the horrific crap I was saying. So I definitely got to go delete some old tweets. End of 2019, we were like starting the process of selling that business. I knew I wanted to do something new. I remembered liking Twitter, right? The thing about Twitter is like if you find a community where it's hot, like when I was hanging out in nightclubs a lot, everyone I knew nightlife a decade ago was on Twitter. And so I was like, oh, let me see what people are up to. You know, I don't really hang out with that world anymore. I started looking into, I guess what I thought of more is like direct response Twitter, marketing Twitter, right? More than money Twitter. If we're going to really segment these into like little things. And there's a really cool guy, shout out to him, GT3 on Twitter, who's like probably one of the best direct response marketers on there and doesn't tweet very often. But he did a funnel breakdown basically of like, of the survival funnel and all of the steps of it, why it worked a certain way. It's actually his pinned tweet. It's one of the best tweets. It's on Twitter. I would definitely read it if someone hasn't. 
And I was like, oh, wow, some people really know this world. Because we skipped over about a 10-year chunk of my life, kind of. But in there, like, I, I did a JV with this big financial newsletter company or this big newsletter company called Agora. Finan- or Agora. I worked with one of their subsidiaries. So there's Agora, then there's all the Agora companies, and there's, like, Agora Financial, who I worked with. And underneath Agora Financial, there's, like, Seven Figure Publishing and Sansbury and Palm Beach, like, all these different subsidiaries. And I did a JV with this company called Seven Figure Publishing, SFP. And that's all like sort of direct response info product stuff. And uh, direct response meaning like you're trying to actually elicit a tangible like performance marketing stuff. Like get somebody to actually do something right there, right? Not just advertising. So his tweet, I was like, whoa, people really know this world. And I think I had a few hundred followers and I was like, this is cool. And I got into it and I started making friends with some other really cool, smart affiliate marketers. And I just, I don't know, I liked it. It just resonated with me. I feel I'm confident with words and thoughts. So that sort of made sense to me there. Because I've flipped websites and I've sold websites, I like always, I'm just digging through websites for sale. I want to look at buying businesses, right? And that's sort of what I'm trying to do in a lot of 2021. And that's how I ended up investing in real estate last year was I realized the easiest businesses to get into if you if you want to use leverage is real estate and you, any bank in the world will give you a loan for a house essentially. But I, I've always been digging through websites for sale and businesses for sale, whether it's DealStream or BizBuySell or Flippa or FE International, all these things. And I've, I'm always just like running cases. It's essentially called running a case, right? Like I would do this and that and this and that. And I posted, and it's actually my pinned tweet now, I think. And I posted a thread on some website I would flip and how I'd flip it. And I gained 1,400 followers in a day. I was just going to ask, how much engagement do you get in those threads? Yeah, so that one I think is like 150,000 impressions, like 40,000 engagements. Wow. And I gained 1,400 followers in Maybe it was like 1,100 a day, but in, in 24 hours. But in like a 24 to 48 hour period, I got 1,400 followers. How long does it take to create a thread like that? And then how do you how do you construct it? A few hours. I mean, a few like a few hours of actual work, you know, and then untold hours of like just digging through garbage to try and find something that I could like create a thesis of what's worth it. And actually, sort of is how I got to where I am today because I I loved it. Shows you how powerful social media and dopamine is, right? Because I was like, whoa, holy crap. I feel amazing. This is super cool. Everyone thinks I'm cool. I'm going to keep going on Twitter, you know? <laughs> and it was just dopamine. I just got addicted to the dopamine hit, right? And I had no way of monetizing. I had no plans about it. It was just fun. And I actually almost stopped doing it. I decided to create a newsletter just called NanoFlips around it. And I did one. And I almost stopped doing it because I was like, my God, like, I'm not doing this for money. And, you know, it takes me forever to do it. And sometimes I can't find... And, to go back to the less of my last business, like consistency is really key, right? And so what's tough for me is like finding deal flow that's consistent, right? That I can write about. I would write about something every day because I love it if I could, but it's just hard to find this stuff. So all of a sudden, you know, in terms of the pumpkin hacking stuff, I love data. You know, I'm, I don't think I'm super smart. I think I'm good at looking at what's there and saying like, we should follow this path. And it was like incredibly clear to me that people were interested in website flipping. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll keep writing about this, you know? So I kept writing about it, I kept writing about it. I now have nothing crazy, but like 7,500 followers or something. I would say that most of them probably come from that. You know, the idea is really to take esoteric, complex concepts and distill them down in a way that becomes palatable for everyone and makes everyone, I mean, just marketing crap, right? Magic pill, right? How do you take something that is not a magic pill and make it feel like a magic pill, right? That's how you sell someone something. And so I take this, take these ideas that require you to spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, risk capital, risk investors capital over 12 months and put a lot of work and make it seem palatable like anyone can do it, which they could because I genuinely believe anyone could do anything. And all of a sudden people love it. And so I actually, when I started doing it more often, I reached out to a couple of guys 
that I know with website brokerages because they're really good deal. So like shout out to Flippa. Flippa is awesome. But the thing is Flippa is a marketplace, right? Versus a brokerage. So marketplace is just like, I could create a website right now and put it on Flippa and sell it. I could not do that with a brokerage. So a brokerage says like, you have to fit a certain criteria. We're going to take a commission on the sale in exchange for sort of representing you on the sale. But there's a certain very special thing. And in real big business, it's called a deal room, right? Like when you're buying or selling a business, you go into a deal room. And in the deal room, it, it can track who's opened what due diligence documents and when they opened it and all this stuff. And so brokerages, if you want to access that content, you want to see the deals, you have to either sign an NDA, right, which is pretty normal, or you have to put down a deposit to see it, right, to say, like, I'm a real buyer. So I would love to write about other websites for sale. The problem is, is that, like, I've got, I don't know, like 1,300 subs and, you know, I reached an aggregate of like 10,000 people between Twitter and my subscriber list, right? And I couldn't get them all to sign an NDA or sign some blank in NDA. So the broker just won't let me write about that stuff, right? So that's one of the first things I tell people when they when I talk to them about website flipping is like, you should be looking at Empire Flippers. You should be looking at FE International. You should be looking at Quiet Light. You should be looking at all these brokerages. Flip is great, but it, you're, it's like looking for diamonds in the rough. And so what do you look at when you find a target to flip? Yeah, yeah. So right now I'm working on a case study because I think that most people, as much as everyone loves to read about how I could show you how to turn 500 grand into 10 million, right? Like it sounds cool. Most people don't have $500,000, nor the connections, nor the, the ability to live through the burn that it takes to get there cash-wise, all these things. So I'm working on a case study with someone that's really sort of me you know, how do you under a thousand dollars or 500 bucks turn something into two or 3000, right? Like, you know, so it's a little bit safer, but if I'm looking at buying something, there's sort of basic baseline metrics that I would look for, which is just like you would look at in any business. Like, is there consistent sales or growth, right? Like I don't want to see something that's existed for three months, right? So for me, the KPIs we're looking at, the key performance indicators are sort of like traffic and revenue, right? And growth, or the, whether that be through traffic or user acquisition, right? So I would look for something with more than 12 months Definitely, probably more than two years of consistent traffic. I'm not an SEO guy. I know nothing about SEO. I mean, I've ranked some keywords before, but it's not my game. So I'm, I'm interested in websites that don't need a great SEO on them, right? So if you've had consistent or growing traffic for two years organically, it means that you've basically survived every single Google algorithm update that they do, right? So your content's probably good, right? You probably have decent SEO. You're not using a lot of black hat. Totally. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, it's not a bunch of spam links, right? So that's one of the main things I look for. I look for sort of diversified traffic sources, but with a gap in one, I understand how to grow. So I get email newsletters, like I get that. So for me, I'm very often looking for websites that are getting traffic from from social, that are getting traffic from organic search, all these different things. Because if one dies, you don't want to have... That's the thing to remember, man, is like, you know, big thing in financial world is, you know, past performance is not an indicator of future results, right? And that's the truth with all this stuff as well. So I think it's important to say like, okay, great. You did 20,000 uniques every month for two years. It does not mean that you're going to tomorrow, right? So as long as you can have that diversified... Yeah, you look at track track record, diversified traffic sources, and then, okay, you make a buying decision, you probably pay between two and three times the yearly revenue. And next step is, how do you actually flip and make money? What do you do? Sure. So I think that a lot of the stuff that I learned, I've known for a long time, because I started as an affiliate marketer. And then, you know, like I said, and then I was really involved. My last business that we sold you know, I said that the that the lipstick was MG Observer. Like what everyone saw was this website, right? But the, the reality is owning much more monetization of the back end. That's a lot of what I talk to people about all the time, right? So 
advertising, AdSense, how this all started, right, is like sort of the lowest hanging fruit. It is because you don't have a better way to monetize, right? So I just kind of look for things in which if you switch out the monetization, you make more money. So I talk a lot about like, oh, using a premium ad, ad network. The reality is there is that like that definitely will make a difference switching from AdSense to Ezoic or, you know, automate ad or ad drive or any of these things, right? Will definitely make you better. It might improve you by 10%. It might improve you by hundred percent. I don't know. That's, it's real. It's depends on a ton of factors, but that's the, the easiest quick switch. But more importantly is sort of how do you make more money, right? And how do you sort of increase the net margin, right? Or how do you or at least make it sort if you can find some sort of MRR or something, that's a world that I don't know a massive amount about, but in terms of multiples, you know, you'll sell a website for more public five years revenue instead of three, you know, if you're looking at MRR. So increasing revenue. And then what the magic that happens here is that, you know, let's say that we're talking, let's say a website sells for 36 times this month revenue, which is pretty normal, right? Three years. If you increase revenue by $100, that's cool. You made 100 bucks, but you increase the value of the website by 3,600 bucks. Right. And so that's why a flip is interesting. I mean, the reality is this is just how private equity works, right? This is just how these these sort of bigger guys make, make, make this stuff happen, value at a PE. Can we give an, uh, an example as in something you bought recently or, or uh, a while back? And what did you do to increase the revenue? Sure. Yeah. So um, is building an email list is one I talk about all the time. Most of the people that have sort of passive websites do not have email lists. They're not active in that. Right. And so, you know, one thing that I've done in the past, which actually really works and I've is building out this email list and people are like, what do I put on the email list, right? Like, what do I email? I just be an aggregator, just be like a curator is what I used to say, right? Of content. So we used to pull RSS feeds from all these different news sources and sort of have them come into one. At the end of every day, we'd say like, okay, here's what's interesting. Here's what people want to read about. Sort of like what the Morning Brew does or the Hustle or the Skim, these massive newsletter aggregators, these news aggregators that are newsletters. And then you add sponsorship. You know, and for us, that was um, we had a couple um, the example I'm thinking of. We had a couple of specific sponsors, but we had to be careful and avoid a lot of them because a lot of them are were like stocks and marketing stocks is a very complex and weird thing. You're not really allowed to sort of just advertise stocks. So that was tough for us. But you can plug in. Obviously, you can plug in other advertisers that are interested in that, that industry. There's a um, interactive offers. Shout out to those guys. It's a CPA network that uses is for financial newsletters is for financial content. So they talk about trading courses, learning how to trade, learning how to invest, stuff like that. But yeah, it's, you know, give everyone a reason to keep coming back to you. So we're just aggregate everyone's news. And I tell people this all the time. I mean, obviously it only works with certain niches, right? But aggregate all the news you can, or, you know, if you're putting out unique blog posts, you know, give them some of that and then sell sponsorship, whether that sponsorship be that they're paying per drop or a blast, or it be that you're getting on a cost per click basis Or, you know, go to ClickBank, right? Like, and go get an affiliate offer or CPA offer and just actually get paid for a conversion, right? Which is eat what you kill stuff. So to run through a basic example, let's talk about a website, a pet website, for example. So everyone's reading about training your dog. You buy it, you see a website, it's making $5,000 a month on AdSense for just how to train your dog. Okay. You put it together, a lead magnet that's like, okay, you know, seven tricks to train your dog and no trainer knows, right? Whatever. That lead mag, people download that ebook, the lead magnet you might have in that, in a lead magnet, some upsells to affiliate offers, maybe something. Chewy's a great one in the dog space, you know, chewy.com, stuff like that, whatever. But then you're there, you have their data and you want to get them in a newsletter about training their dog, right? Or it might be like one tip every a week, right? So they're used to getting weekly emails from you, whatever. 
Then you can just aggregate other. Listen, if I wrote a blog post and someone with 50,000 subscribers wants to share my blog post, cool. I'm like super down, right? Like people are like, how do I get content? But like, I want you to share my content. That's literally these people's goal. So if you're like actually helping every piece of the value chain here, right? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing blackout about it. It's super real. And there's more complex stuff. Like I said, I've done a deep dive into programmatic display and like setting up your own ad servers and sort of, you know, and header bidding and stuff like that. And it's just like a little, it's a little esoteric and doesn't necessarily have as much of a quantifiable thing. But the better example is like, if you're going through an affiliate network, let's say you're like selling leads for dog walkers through an affiliate network. I can absolutely promise you, if you can go find dog walkers to sell those leads to directly, you are going to make money, more money off of those leads, right? Because you're just not going to be broken. So these sort of high level stuff I try and say is like, figure out how to own the back end more, figure out how to capture more of that revenue model that they have. It might be building an email list so that you can get, like, listen, email list, you also might send them back to your website all the time, which has AdSense ads on it, right? And then they're clicking on ads. It doesn't really matter there, right? But I guess a tangible example was um, financial news, aggregating content, pulling it all together, and then selling sponsorship or having offers on there. Or to be honest with you, at one point we had something called DMO Pro, which was a sort of paid monthly sort of breakdown and analysis of the equities markets in the cannabis industry, right? So pot stocks. And that's just, you can do that with a Substack today as well, right? If, as long as you're actually knowledgeable or convert kit, like as long as you're actually knowledgeable enough about the space, you can get people to start actually paying you for your insight and interesting thoughts on the space. James Camp, thank you very much. This was really cool. Where can people find you? On Twitter, I'm Jameson Camp or James on Camp. You know, the website flipping, which is just free, just like breakdown website flips is nanoflips.com. I'm sort of struggling with this concept of being like a guru-esque public person. It's everything in me has like fought it with every part of my soul. Everyone I know in like the direct response world or VC world is like, what are you doing? How un-American of you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it though, man. I love it. You know, the other thing that I love doing, and it's not a plug, but like, I did, a, a, if you follow me, you'll see me talk about consulting and stuff, right? But I've done really high level consulting in my life, but it's sort of the epiphany I've had. I had a couple of epiphanies really recently. And it's one is it defines, and I just want everyone to think about this, is like find what feels like play to you instead of a slog and like put yourself in positions to do that and you'll become really successful. And then sort of I've started doing these consulting calls and helping people with marketing strategy. And people used to always say to me, oh, like, I love helping people. I know the co the coaches world really well. My, my one of my best friends is this, used to be a CMO of Mind Valley, which is like a big player in that space. And I know that guru and consult coaching world well. And I was like, I used to be like, this is just utter fakeness. And actually getting someone, my goal is like to get people to be like, oh my god, you help me. Like that's my one goal. And I'm such an ego driven individual that it makes me feel super amazing. So like totally unrelated to everything we spoke about. Like I really want to hammer home to people that you should be finding things that not that you love, but that feel like play that are work. And if you can find a way to do that in a way that actually like elicits a response from whether it's consulting or agency work or whatever, but actually makes helps people, whether it makes them money or makes them feel good, whatever. Like I've found myself in a really awesome position having chats with people like you and really awesome people because of that. So that's my long-winded thing. You can find me at Jamison Camp on Twitter and listen to me ranting a lot more there. Thanks, James. It's been fun. I think, uh, yeah, ending uh, with a really good tip that if you have fun, then, you know, you'll get a long way. Thank you.
That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. Thank you.